Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is poet Terence Hayes. He was born in Columbia, South Carolina, and educated at Coker College, where he studied painting and English, and was an academic All-American on the men's basketball team. After receiving his MFA from the University of Pittsburgh, he taught in Japan and at a number of colleges back in the States before becoming a professor of English at New York University. He has also been a faculty member of Cave Canem, that's Latin for Beware of Dog. It's an organization founded to remedy the underrepresentation of African American poets in master's programs and writing workshops in the United States. Hayes has created several award-winning volumes of poetry. His sixth collection, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, was a finalist for the National Book Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the T.S. Eliot Prize, among others. Recently, Terence Hayes was joined by Indiana Poet Laureate Adrian Matika for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Terence Hayes. Welcome to Profiles. Good to be here. Man, I'm so glad that we get to spend a little time chopping it up. Yeah, no doubt. It'll be on record for once. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was trying to figure out what kind of questions I wanted to ask you. I mean, Mm -hmm. so often we're not even talking about poems. That's right. Talking about hoops a lot, music Mm -hmm. a lot, the shapes and colors of New York City, because it almost always, at least recently, Mm -hmm. has been at home for you. So maybe we should start there. How has New York been to your writing? Um, you know, it's busy enough that I can just stay in mm-hmm. and work. So, I mean, my whole social life is just my students, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I teach, and then I go home and write. And I do come up with other things so that I'm not writing all the time. Yeah. So that means I get out to, like, a drawing class. The other day I went and saw a bunch of poets. I don't even know what I would categorize these poets, but I wasn't going to see any peers there. So mm-hmm. it was, like, Clint Smith and mm-hmm. uh, Sarah Kay. Mm-hmm. Anis, I can't remember Anis's last name, and Hanif, whose oh. last name I can't quite say. Yeah. So they did a great thing. It was in Brooklyn, and I worked that day, and I got out that night to go to that. I saw him. I was like, good job, and I got in the uh, subway and went back home. And, you know, that's a perfect day for me. I, yeah. don't, I ain't trying to socialize. I just want to hear some poetry. So New York <laughs> is perfect for that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking about the architecture of the place and the way it it seems to me to close in on me while mm-hmm. I'm there, but I never feel like I can't get out, right. if that makes sense. It always feels like there's some place to go, intellectually or physically, creatively. Which actually makes you want to stay in, for me anyway. <laughs> it's like, it's so much going on, I don't feel much pressure to get out. But then occasionally it'll occur to me that I need to get out. I don't even, Did I get out yesterday? I don't even know if I got out. Were you working? Uh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. always working, yeah. working on, I think I spent the whole day working on a sentence. <laughs> I ain't joking. Do, so, can you share yeah. the sentence? Or is, it uh, still, or is it still in process? It's still in process, because I think it's going to be something. But it's mm-hmm. a sentence riffing on a, on a, you remember Jack Handy from mm-hmm. Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of sad that a family can be torn apart by something as small as wild dogs. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm doing a riff on that. I think I tried to make that into a, I think I got about a half a page sentence out of that. <laughs> so, but yeah, you know, that's a good day working on a, a sentence about wild dogs, a sentence about a Jack Handy joke. <laughs> so, but I couldn't get it to work. Um, yeah. You know, I daydream sometimes about getting that stuff so I can like show it and read it. Like, oh, this, this is going to really wow Adrian if I could get it to work. But, <laughs> so, half of me was thinking if I can make this thing into something, maybe I'll share it. But yeah, it's not there happen. yet. <laughs> but when we see it, we'll know like that's the one. That right. Was the... Yeah. But that could be a while. Well, I was thinking about this too because you do paint. 
And somebody told me, Aaron Ballou told me you can also sing. <laughs> and, uh, that's not something that I've experienced mm-hmm. uh, yet. Maybe we haven't stayed out late enough or whatever, but she also said you could sing. And, you know, and that doesn't surprise me given the musicality of the work you do, the way that you attend to the sonics on the page and around, because we so often are cutting up about music. Mm-hmm. So, maybe, you know, let's do something different and talk about who you're listening to right now. So now, you know, the students asked me a question like that, yeah. and I said, and I, I think this is like my answer that I prefer to tell people is like, mm-hmm. I listen to everything. It's really yeah. a question of like how long and how often I listen to stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I have like a monthly, I call it like a song diary. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always listening. Even just morning, I probably, you know, half the stuff I played I hadn't heard before. And mm-hmm. so that's usually right. Like in a given day, maybe half the music are things I have not heard. Mm. And if they don't stick, they just don't stick. You know, I just kind of keep on rolling. And then there are the songs that I kind of come back to. Just yesterday, I was thinking like, I don't feel like I ever listened to enough Stevie Wonder, you know? (laughs) So I had been listening to The Secret Life of Plants, I think it is, very orchestral, it's Mm. big, it's from like the late 70s. Yeah. And so I was thinking, I feel like I just only want to listen to Stevie Wonder. So I haven't yet, but there will be a day where that's what I'll do. I'll just put on this whole catalog. But otherwise, I don't keep track. I don't keep track. There's certain people that I have a lot of music on, so if I'm just doing a normal shuffle, they show up. So like mm-hmm. 21 Savage, <laughs> 21. Future, Miles Davis, uh, yeah. Hendrix, show, my, uh, Marvin Gaye shows up, Nina yeah. Simone yeah, shows sure. up a hell for of sure. a lot. But otherwise, I'm just trying to always like listen to something that'll make me stop. I kind of read that way too, mm-hmm. so I don't count reading a poem or a book of poems one time is really reading, even though I can remember it and I'll be like, yeah, I read it. But really it's the stuff that like is making me slow down or making me go back and read it again. That really counts. I don't think I was like that when I was younger, but now if it doesn't stick, then it just doesn't stick. So that's definitely true with music. You know, I wonder how much of that has to do with the kind of influences we've been exposed to in the mm-hmm. last... I mean, you've been writing for, like, what, 30 years? Something like point? that. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I'm talking about decades now, right. not, yeah. not just... Mm-hmm. I remember last week when we did this. Right, right. I have four poems, and I'm going to send these things out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like stacks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if the way that you receive work hasn't changed just on a fundamental level because you've been exposed to so much, and you read right. so much, right? right? And you listen to so much. At some point, you know that... Not all of it deserves the same attention at the same time. Right. You know, I'm trying to think of a diplomatic way to say that some of it is just not going to be inspiring. Right. The the more you hear, the harder it is to kind of get that high, so to speak, out of the the new work, the new poem, the new Mm -hmm. discovery. But it's still worthwhile. I mean, so I, I, the reason I just kind of let it go all the time is because there's so much. I mean, I think I got 10,000 songs just on my phone by (laughs) itself, right? It is very much like the way other people pursue other kinds of pleasures. But for yeah. me, music is that way. I'm just looking for something to do it. And when it does it, it's great. You know what I mean? I heard this old uh, uh, Paul Simon song the other day. It said, mm-hmm. it's great. But I was like, I can't believe no rappers have used this. It's called Wristband, <laughs> Restrained Song, Wristband. Anyway, it's a crazy <laughs> song. But you know, it's like Paul Simon. Yeah, well, people. Keep up? We forgot about Paul Simon. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a long way away from Graceland. You right. Know I, mean? I never listened to that much Bob Dylan. I would choose mm-hmm. Joni Mitchell over a Bob Dylan. So I have to say, with a yeah. bit of... Shame, I guess, that I've never been a huge Bob Dylan fan. Well, it feels like an obligation. Mm-hmm. You know but the I mean? Beatles, I'm with that. Yeah, Elvis, yeah. I'm with that. You know, as I said, I mean, all of it. I love most of it. But Bob Dylan, eh. Yeah. He won a Nobel Just Prize, which is complicated. You know? mm, so wait a minute. So let me ask you about that. So he won a Nobel Prize. Mm. Kendrick won a Pulitzer. Right. Which is amazing. What do you think about that? Like uh, about musicians who are also working in text but aren't poets or aren't writers in the same way that I guess we've been trying to frame it for a mm. little while. 
What do you think about them getting love? Well, you know, it's usually getting it from people who aren't really poets. So in both cases, if it's a question of, you know, who gives the prize. So right. like with the Nobel, like, well, those people are giving that prize. They don't know what poetry is anyway. Yeah. So it doesn't count. Um, but, you know, he's a good writer. It's yeah. just that, you know, he needs to accompany a bit of music. So that separates it from poetry for me. But I'm yeah. not saying he's not a good writer. It's just yeah. like that sound is not well, a sound that I kind of am enchanted by. But uh, Kendrick, too, I mean, in both cases, I think they're yeah. doing their work regardless of that kind of affirmation which mm-hmm. is probably the best place to want to be in where you're just like it's nice when you get it you know put it on your cv get a little raise or whatever but <laughs> it's not really super essential to the production of the work yeah so i mean if he wrote a book of poems after he got the prize i would be like okay there's a reason bob dylan now is going to write poems but you know he yeah. didn't do that yeah he yeah, ain't a better yeah. poet than leonard cohen no you know well see I mean? that's what i was thinking you i mean know? he would be at the table but uh, Leonard Cohen is a real poet, and I right. say that even with the songwriting. So I'm not saying, mm-hmm. actually, you know, Joni Mitchell's a pretty good poet, too. Yeah. But of that trio, Leonard Cohen is like the poet. The one who was attended to the page in that way, yeah. Right. And, and lives I, as such and has the kind of relationship to the language as such, mm-hmm. you know, so. Yeah, no, that's real. Like, So what would that table look like for you, the table of songwriters who straddle, at least in the use of language, poetry, mm-hmm. right? You know, never mind the, the kind of approach to it, right? They're not going to publish a volume. Right. You know, but Leonard Cohen did. I think he put a book out. Yeah. But he's on it. But then it's hard. Then I just go blank. Stevie yeah. Wonder's Stevie on there. Stevie Wonder. Uh, Prince is a good songwriter. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Public Enemy, Cool Keith. Even Billie Holiday. I mean, I even though she didn't write all of those songs herself, right. but, you know, just different relationship to, like, delivery and what one can do beyond the lyrics, but sort of delivery style, which is something I think about, too. Pacing, speed, syntax. Yeah. So certainly if you're thinking about, like, the syntax of a Billie Holiday figure, there's something to learn there. Yeah, uh, yeah Nina Simone, yeah. Uh, same kind of situation, like maybe not explicitly because of the writing, but because of the kind of articulation yeah. of the language, which is, yeah. is, you know, as useful as understanding the actual songwriting phenomena. But like, you know, all on the Watchtower, like I said, I mean, Bob Dylan's got some great, oh, he's got some great stuff. But once Jimi Hendrix does it, we have something else going there. <laughs> That's what, yeah, so sometimes the lyrics it, can do that. Yeah, maybe it takes another artist to amplify or lens the vision, right? Right. You know, I teach a class about rap music and poetry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, you know, go in just straight up. We're not talking about your boy Drake. Right, right, right. We're not right, talking right. about Kanye. We're not, you're making a distinction between the people who write their mm-hmm. own verses and who don't. Right, right. Uh, because it seems kind of fundamental. If we're going to talk about a mm-hmm. poet, we should be talking about the poet who chose those words right. and spent that day working on a sentence. That's right. <laughs> and know? it's not all a hook. Because Kanye could write at the beginning, but, you know, it's mostly hooks. There's a thing about that, too, about, like, uh, how long one can sustain being a poet or being inside a poem. So you can find a lot of people who had their poetic stretches Mm -hmm. and then sort of, like, shifted out of that. So that's a Kanye figure. Like, it's the success or it's age or it's mental illness or something. But, like, whatever it is, you know in that early work that there really is an artist and a poet at work. And now it's just, like... Maybe just ego. How about that? Like, yeah. he gets older and that ego is sort of in the way of whatever poetry he was channeling yeah. earlier. So they all kind of shift. They all kind of come in and out of it, I guess. I guess that's one way to think about it. The poet for a little while. You know, it's funny because who didn't shift is Stevie Wonder. Right, yeah. Right? Like, yeah. when you mentioned him, mm-hmm. my first thought was, okay, you know, untouchable run. Right. <laughs> I know, know it. It's so good that we just sort of forget he's like air. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Which is what I was thinking when I was, because yeah. the particular record, I was just like, I don't even know how I even got on The Secret Life of Plants again. Mm-hmm. It just came up on something I was mm-hmm. listening to, and then I just, here I am like about a month later still listening to it, and just yesterday saying, I should just go ahead and just listen to nothing but Stevie Wonder. Clearly, that's what I'm always waiting for in the right. midst of a universe of songs playing 
when that yeah. comes through. I think I'm going to read American Sign It with Inner Visions. See, <laughs> he's in it because I've been, you know, thinking yeah. about him. So he's in the poem with Baldwin and R.G. Lord. Wow, I love that. It. Well, it's one of the things I really like about the sonnets in particular mm-hmm. is the way that they contain a multitude of fistfights. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? In this really compact space, Baldwin can be there next to Stevie Wonder. I feel like I should read it because, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm like, I'm dreading having to read anything. But I'm like, well, I can read that, though. It's I, new. And it feels um, important. But yeah, so I mean, how this is connected is it's just that, like, you know, you he's there in the background playing and I'm thinking about him while just doing my work, doing my, my regular stuff. And yeah. so at some point, you know, especially because of the shape of the sonnets, the sort of way that boxes just open for anything, mm-hmm. eventually he sort of will get in there. So that's what this one is. American Sonnet for Inner Visions. When James Baldwin and Audre Lorde each lend Stevie Wonder an eyeball, He immediately contends with gravity, falling either to his knees or flat on his luminous face. I've heard various versions of the story. In this one, Audre Lorde dons immaculate French loafers, turtleneck ball gown, and Afro halo. An eye-sized ruby glimmers on a pinky ring that's a hair too big for Jimmy Baldwin's pinky. He's blue with beauty. They're accustomed to being followed, but now the eye-patched twins will be especially scary to white people. Looking upon them, Stevie Wonder's head purples with plural visions of blackness, gavels, grapples, purrs, pins. Odds are ten to one. God also prefers to be referred to as they and them. That's wonderful, man. So, you know, all the other stuff that circles around that, the act, particular record, and mm. even anything in particular about Stevie Wonder doesn't always get to the poem. But his presence just being in the air means it's going to be him that, you know, I'm thinking about when I'm thinking about vision and thinking yeah. about blindness. Yeah, well, I, it sounds like Stevie Wonder, though, too, in a really wonderful way, especially the lyric movement at the uh-huh. end. It sounds like the way that the keys would be worked in right. the background of something off of inner visions. Or, but, you know, um, that just comes from, like, if he's in the air, right? Just like, I mean, so so much of what I talk to my students about is just like learning how to listen to yourself. Right. So you're going out looking for subject matter. So maybe that subject matter is on race, gender, class, where you grew up. Mm-hmm. But if you listen to yourself, those things are always simultaneous and you're always thinking things about it. But we just get so used to quieting that voice. So like in a poem like that, I think I'm just thinking like, what would he have been like if he could see? Like, mm-hmm. would we have the same Steve? And so it's just like the music comes on and it just goes right through your head. Yeah. Well, would Stevie want to be the same if he hadn't been blind? Right. And then, you know, that's a thought that we might have and just keep on going. <laughs> but for me, like, you know, you're just like, oh, I think I just heard something. It's like hearing a note, like, oh, there's mm-hmm. something there to play around with. But it just comes from like hearing, I think, not just the music itself, but hearing yourself hear the music or seeing yourself see the thing and then mm-hmm. capturing that. Because if that's true, again, the pressure, the uh, oppression of subject matter is different. So that's one of the things I talk about. The same, you know, lyric is like that. Lyric is yeah. totally listening to yourself and not trying to shape the stories that kind of are received. Yeah. You can do a lot more if you do that, is what I'm saying to you. And yeah. so certainly the sonnets work in that way. Harder, especially like trying to work on the sentence or trying to build a narrative out of that mm-hmm. joke and contextualize that, much more work, much longer which I like. I like to have something to be working on. But those sonnets, though, they come like that. It's just like idea, visualize it. So I think that poem came out because it was already cooking. For me, I feel like I'm just trying to get people to listen to themselves a little bit better or see themselves 
a little bit better and see like what's the art and the poetry in that listening and seeing, I think. Yeah, that's so good, man. I was thinking that when you said that there was, I think it was maybe in Beverly Hills Cop or something mm-hmm. like that. And Eddie Murphy was talking about the difference between listening and hearing. Uh-huh, and like how, uh-huh. I think it was a white cop or something. He's like, you know, you, you can listen to James Brown, but you can't right. hear him. Right. Or something to right. that effect. Uh-huh. Right? And uh-huh. In some ways, we kind of box ourselves up in the world in that way where mm-hmm. we're listening, but we're not hearing. Right, I mean, right, right. But see, the we, idea is to be maybe be doing both all the time, yeah. in fact, you know, watching and looking, seeing and observing. Do you think that part of the inattentiveness, certainly in poetry, is coming from the way that poetry is packaged? I was thinking back to you saying that mm-hmm. uh, it's usually non-poets who would imagine Bob Dylan as a poet right, first. Right. Uh, that's such an interesting question because, you know, I don't think I worry about it. Actually, I'll frame it this way, like, why I don't worry about it? Those aren't real problems, you know. <laughs> so, like, I teach, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I see my livelihood and my definition of self as a professor and as a teacher. Mm -hmm. So even my mom, when she introduces me to people, she says, my son is a professor. And I'm like, that's totally right. Do not be going around saying my son's a poet. Because (laughs) the poet title is so large Mm -hmm. and so complicated that I always feel like it's an aspirational goal. Mm -hmm. Even though obviously, you know, we both, we've been doing this, we have validation, we've had these things. But I sort of rather not think of it as being super tied to my livelihood because I need to get free. I need to be free. Having said that, then, it's a very small pool of real poets. So there's a lot of people working and mm-hmm. teaching poetry and publishing books. But the notion of the poet and my notion of the poem is something It's just not that many people. So, you know, yeah. Bridget Begin, Kelly. I mean, yeah. we can call people out from the canon and then we can call. I feel like I'm only friends with real poets. <laughs> so I ain't friends with no fake poets. I mean, I might teach a few fake poets, but I ain't friends with no fake poets. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know. So I'm making know. decisions like that in terms yeah. of just like that basic understanding. So that the people that think Bob Dylan is a real poet, they probably ain't my friends. You know, I talk to them, I might teach them, I might have something to teach them, but those aren't gonna be the people. So I just don't worry about it. And I feel like that is the luxury of being a teacher, which is I can think about a world where we're teaching people things, as opposed to thinking about it being a dumb world. You sort of yeah. think of it as like, well, I can, anybody that's interested in learning, that's yeah. my job. But that's a much easier notion than like, I am a poet and my poems will change the world. My poems right. will affect anything, political, emotional, something, something, something. So I hope it does, but I don't want to rely on it doing that. Do you know what I mean? Except for with myself, you know what I mean? Like I'm working alone to make those things happen, but I can't be making my livelihood on trying to change people's lives. You see what I'm saying? Like in that, in the artistic way, certainly in the classroom way, but not in an artistic way. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That might be one of the reasons that you're in my group of poets. Sure, you know, sure. I, and the, I know you do the work. Right, right. And I know what this means to you. And, and it communicates. I mean, yeah. you have to have faith in that. You have to have yeah. faith that you're... I tell my kids, look, if you spent five minutes on it, that means I'm going to spend five seconds on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, if you spent a day working on this poem, maybe i read it twice. So, like, <laughs> how much work you putting in comes out. And I'm like, is that yeah. true for paintings? Maybe not. But certainly yeah. with writing, you want to have a sense that you're spending this time with this thing that somebody else has spent time with. Yeah. And, you know, that's just not always the case. Yeah, no, so. absolutely. You know, I have a running joke with the MFAs here about their work ethic and they work hard. And they, you mm-hmm. know, they're trying to, to find a way to be in the world where they can both be on the page, but right. also kind of affect change, you know, in the orchard or in, you know, like going into the schools, that mm-hmm. kind of work, you know. Mm-hmm. And I love all of that. But one of the things that I always talk about is that scene from He Got Game uh-huh. where uh-huh. Uh, Ray Allen, like little Ray Allen is right. out on the court and he's running line laps, you know, uh-huh. and Denzel Washington was like, you know, who else is out here working this hard? And he's like, right. nobody but Michael Jordan. Right, right, you know? right. And, and my idea is, hey, somebody right now is working on a poem. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, we're working on poems right now, but right. I mean, there's somebody who's actually got pen to page. Yeah. And if you're not working as hard as they are, maybe right. you're not attending to the thing. And, you know, I feel like we maybe have talked about this before, but my favorite word in those relationships is practice, yeah. not the game. So mm-hmm. that's what that is about. He got yeah. game, too. Like, it really yeah. is all the work that you're doing where you can have failure, where mm-hmm. you can kind of like run up against the wall and then mm-hmm. see what else am I going to do? You know, what happens when the poem doesn't work? Are you going to let it go? Are you going to keep going at it? You know, yeah. like those things happen in the circumstances of practice. But the game is like, bring your poem out, people in the audience, let's see what it's about. Let's see what you've been working on. Yeah. But I much prefer the practice space. So the analogy <laughs> I gave, is this, I don't know if I ever told you this, the analogy that I gave was that, you know, one time I did a 360 dunk. It was at the end of practice, we were messing around, and somehow I did it. And it was just like a handful of folks around. But, you know, I would never try that in a game. I wouldn't even try it in, like, scrimmaging because yeah. of the risk of missing it, like the cost yeah. of not getting those two points. So mm-hmm. you're naturally a little bit more conservative when it comes to rules, when mm-hmm. it comes to, like, order. But practice is one of those places. Like, if you miss it, maybe you'll try it again. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. Are we keeping score? Maybe we're not. And I yeah. find like that is the space that really triggers freedom and yeah. experimentation. So it's not best to wait to the game. It's not I'm gonna bring my A game mm-hmm. on the next time. I don't I don't go with the Allen Iverson analogy. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so right. uh, yeah. but yeah, I definitely yeah. believe that a lot of the good stuff happens when you're running those laps in between the lines and all yeah. other stuff that maybe no one sees in terms of the day-to-day practice. Yeah, yeah. Did you write a little bit about that and the space between? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think about it all the time. I talk yeah. about it all. I mean, it's one of the biggest lessons I got from basketball, you yeah. know, is that idea that like, oh, and I did like it. I always liked practice. And I can just kind of keep playing the analogy out because, you know, you're with people who kind of know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So all my friends that are watching me try to make the dunk even when I'm missing it they still understand the stakes right but if like if there's people maybe in the audience they don't know how hard it is like oh wow I mean sometimes they'll cheer if you miss a really daring move but I'm saying like the intimacy of the teammates understanding even in failure that the idea Mm -hmm. is just to be there making that attempt so I kind of like respond more to those kinds of poets too the poets who are the degree of sympathy degree of pressure, but also understanding like we're all in this water together. Right. So, you know, that gets complicated when I think about like my non-poet audience. Like, I'm glad they come along. <laughs> um, I sometimes think that the people aren't poets don't know what I'm doing, mm-hmm. but I'm still up there. I'm still trying to read it. I'm still trying yeah. to share it. And I also, as I would say, like, it doesn't really matter that much if it's too mm-hmm. complicated for people. I would say go do something else. Go find you some other kind of source of joy. But yeah. it's poetry. So it's not like life and death for you, you know, it shouldn't be. Maybe you got something else that it's life and death for. Yeah. So I don't put that on people. You know what right. I mean? But that's how I find freedom, to not think of it as like this large calling all the time. Yeah, I think part of the posture of the poet, too, is to argue through that for themselves. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, maybe when we were talking about Kanye, he decided that being Kanye was more important than being exactly. a musician. Exactly. Um, and there are poets probably who have that same experience. And then, Yeah, then it's, they, and it's a reasonable debate. I was hanging out with, uh, I did the Furious Flower thing, so mm-hmm. I was hanging out with Tracy Morris. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they had me hosting this thing. Because oh. she was like, I'm going to get uh, Joanne Gabin, who runs Furious Flower. I was like, I was trying to get Common, you know. So I'm like, am I, <laughs> after Common, there had to be somebody. Else in between me and Common. So I did it. And you know, I'm just like, you know, trickster joking or whatever. Uh-huh. And in the break, Tracy said, who's Tracy is a poet, but she right. has also trained in acting and voice and performance. And so she was like, you should be more more gravitas. Like you're so self-deprecating, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, but that gravitas is what I do for the poem. So you don't want me to walk around the way that I am in my poems. <laughs> like my poems are very intense. They can be sad, they can be provocative, you know, there's all yeah. kinds of things that I'm doing. So I really said to her, essentially, 
I always put the poem first. The poem is what you are getting. And then the poet is like a kind of persona, like which is more real, Terrence the poet or Terrence the poem? Right. And then she said, why are you separating them? And I'm like, because uh, the poem is eternal and I ain't. Like, <laughs> I got to invest in the poem because that's going to be around yeah. after I'm gone. So I wouldn't invest in it. And she kept insisting that, mm-hmm. you know, I shouldn't separate them that way. But that is kind of how I think about it. And she's someone I trust, so I might yeah. be wrong. But yeah. until I realize I'm wrong, I'm going to stick with that argument, you know. Yeah. So That would be putting a lot of pressure on yourself, too. Yeah, also yeah. Think, you know, I think about what would it be like to go to a party dressed up as a poem, you know. Right. I don't know that you know, we'd ever be invited back again. <laughs> <laughs> listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is poet Terence Hayes, author of American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. He's speaking with Indiana Poet Laureate Adrian Matika. You played ball. Mm -hmm. I played ball. Is there something from hoops? I mean, we are also in the great state of Indiana. Sure, sure, sure. More NBA players in the league per capita Uh than any other state. Is there something that you took from basketball that it re- like immediately has imprinted itself? It would just be like kind of a, a certain work ethic mm-hmm. or a certain understanding of like what real stakes are. Yeah. So for me, the joy of it were like interpersonal relationships, yeah. like maybe akin to soldiers in the trenches or something. So not scoring. I mean, I would love to score like 40 points in a game, but it wasn't yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? It yeah. wasn't the kind of public part of that physical activity. And again, I don't know, maybe this would be the same in the military. I have to like really meditate on the different kinds of ways it happens. I think it happens in class. Like yeah. I do believe that intimacy that comes around the workshop when people mm-hmm. are putting poems, exposing themselves, right. it also creates a kind of dynamic that just can't be replicated anywhere else. And therefore it's a value to me. Mm-hmm. So that's really what I loved in basketball was like mm-hmm. just negotiating all those personalities and having things work out or not work out. And again, it wasn't like I was like, my coach's favorite, and it wasn't like he was my favorite person either. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. His frustration with me was that I was, like, prioritizing, well, school too, but certainly right. prioritizing, like, my friends, the guys on the team over, mm-hmm. like, him, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yeah, like, no, they were more important to me than the coach. I still think that's how it was supposed to be. Yeah. So it was like I was going to be more responsive to, like, what they needed and talking to them than to him. Like, even in the NBA, I'm like, why do we need coaches? We don't really need coaches unless they're like Phil Jackson. Like, most people, <laughs> they're grown men. Yeah. So all right. they got to do is, like, come to some agreement. And it would be a good exercise. Like, it wouldn't be easy. It would be mm-hmm. as hard as, like, Congress. But the exercise of grownups deciding what play they want to run or mm-hmm. when someone's really done something screwy, it's like a healthy exercise. Yeah. So the notion of, like, a overseeing coach especially for grown-ups and especially yeah. for people who've been playing sports for their whole lives. So for yeah. me, to get to the point, what I got out of basketball is just a deeper appreciation for like not that kind of hierarchy, but for like the immediacy of working mm-hmm. with people in front of you, next to you, working on a poem, doing pass and dribbles, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's just much more real-time and much more valuable than all the other kind of projections and speculations about what's going to happen in the game or who's going to say what, what's your coach going to say, what the referee going to say, mm-hmm. what the people in the audience going to say, like all those things to me, just ultimately are not where the real joy comes from. 
So you mentioned Phil Jackson. I remember mm-hmm. we were talking one time. You said you met him. Yeah, right? and yeah, hung yeah. Out with yeah him he's a, a good bit. dude. Yeah. Can you talk about that? I mean, he's out in New York now. I shouldn't tell it because <laughs> the circumstances under which I met him and Peggy Noonan on an Easter Sunday, uh, <laughs> how I got there would be like, oh, be telling people's business. But you know, a uh, good dude. We talked about books he had given Jordan and <laughs> compassion versus Buddhism. That's what we were talking about. You know, like yeah. the love that Jesus talks about versus the compassionate Buddhism advocates for and he kept asking me what I was you know like what are you what are you I was like man I'm a bastard (laughs) like that's what I am a proud bastard too you know but he kept Native American or something I'm like no I told you what I was yeah regular dude and again a person who if I'm like bringing that back into the sphere of our conversation just a person who um, had a you know a life outside of the game essentially I'm still distinguishing game from practice you know what I mean like a life that wasn't just tied to the celebrity and the visibility of a game but of other things so we wouldn't see like the vagina monologues and before (laughs) that you know did a few other things before he went back to Montana that's so wild man I mean just even having this conversation I mean we've talked about this before Mm -hmm. and I'm still like how how does poetry and six rings he has six rings and something like that that. yeah Yeah, because he got did he get six with the bulls or five of the Bulls five. and one with the Lakers or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something ridiculous remember. like that. Extra hand kind of right. necessary rings. But I think about like the world of poetry and mm-hmm. the way that we kind of operate in it, in that right. world, right. and how those two intersected with you. That's really wild. Right. It's weird, like yeah. what people think they're getting when they like bring a poet out. It's that kind of thing. <laughs> so you know, I don't do it a lot, but in this yeah. situation, I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll come out. Sort of the full arc of that story is like later he wanted me to uh, watch. A game with them, and I was like, "Ah, right. oh, you gonna be? T- you already told me I can't talk." That was one of the rules. When, that day when we hung out, he was like, "I don't want to talk about Trump. I don't want to <laughs> talk about LeBron James." I think they had just had some Twitter dust up, so you know we re- we didn't. But when he later on was like, "You know, do you want to come watch the uh, finals?" I was like, "I can't talk about LeBron James. He's in the finals." And yeah. I thought, like, I already got my Phil Jackson story. I don't need to. Yeah, you know, we to be best friends. Why I got to keep on hanging out with them? Yeah. So you know, I mean, I I will prioritize <laughs> things over like again the intimacy of the mm-hmm. conversation because I did feel some kind of way about him coming in laying down the rules about what we could talk about and what we couldn't talk about yeah, you know? it's, it's, so I'm like that's not going to be fun yeah well, especially when we're talking about you know, the greatest basketball player in motion at that right, time right? right and so we're supposed to act like the best player is not there uh-huh. you know how does that how to I'm still trying to imagine how that would be like the blank space that would right well he just meant we talked about religion mm-hmm. and we talked about whoever he thought I was and a bunch of other yeah, stuff you know yeah. what I mean but it was just like those topics are off the table which you know just doesn't really work for me because because mm-hmm. the minute you say that, I'm like, <laughs> oh, right. I want to talk about the relationship between Trump and LeBron James. You know, That's let's right. talk about them both. So, you know, but we, I, yeah. I, I did it. We didn't go too deep into it. But it was only yeah. like six people there. I think that people sort of have weird notions about what they're getting for poets. Because right. I'm like, I ain't coming to read no poems. I'm just right. coming to like talk to you. I'm coming to like sit next to you. So yeah. if I come in and you've laid out these stipulations that mm-hmm. to me... That's like a real handicap for someone that really wants to communicate and have an intimate conversation. So it still was great, though. But yeah. I definitely was like, I ain't going to hang out with you no more. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that the wildest place poetry has brought you? Or is there some place crazier than that? Uh, every place is wild, man. I mean, if I do like biography stuff, I mean, mm-hmm. I went back home to South Carolina for Labor Day because mm-hmm. I hadn't got down there. And I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and see mm-hmm. how everybody's doing. And it was weird to be there by myself without my family and... Mm-hmm. My old 85-year-old step-grandfather. And, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody was so strange down there. And they were sort of talking to me about what I do. Mm-hmm. And I will say to you, I loop back to the same thing I said earlier, which is like, all I do is teach. I just yeah. teach. And then all the other stuff that happens, I pretty much do anything once. Mm-hmm. So if there's a kind of like uh, runoff 
from the success of writing the poems. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with that just because I'm nosy. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so every place feels like that. Like, you yeah. know, I was just in Paris for something. But, you know, if I gave you like a very sincere answer around that, that's mm-hmm. beyond like the celebrity part of it. It's mm-hmm. like that it lets me teach. I mean, that is the sort of. It's wild. That's right? where it's got me because I always thought that I would do that anyway. So mm-hmm. even in high school, in high school in my senior year, I always made A's in English. I was in all advanced classes, mm-hmm. and that was the first place where I thought something weird was going on because I wasn't with my my friends. They would like pull me aside, and yeah. I would be in these special classes with all these little rich, smart, precocious white kids, mm-hmm. right? And so I knew something was going on. But in my senior year, because I was dating a girl who was like a cheerleader across town, I would leave at lunch and go see her mm-hmm. and sometimes not come back because you know, we can leave <laughs> campus in those days or heydays of high school. So I was failing English because it was right after lunch. Oh, wow. And you know, it was a great class. I loved the teacher, yeah. uh, Miss Grimes. And so at the end of it, I said to her, sort of getting into the spring, like, what if I want to be a teacher? What if I want to be an English teacher? Are you really going to give me a bad grade? <laughs> First time I'd ever said it. And I was totally trying to hustle her. And she said something like, yeah, I think you could do that. You know, I think you could do it. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I was about to be the first person of my parents to even graduate from high school. So I certainly wasn't thinking I was going to be teaching in university. You know what I mean? But I was thinking from that moment that I could probably teach, that I would like to do it. I feel like she gave me a C minus or a D at the end. You know, but it was the spring of my senior year, so it didn't matter. So you're you're already signed. (laughs) But I always remembered it for that moment because Mm -hmm. what I thought I was doing was hustling. And it was, Mm -hmm. in fact saying something that was a true thing for me, which is like, but I think I want to do what you do. You ain't going to like give me a bad grade when I'm aspiring <laughs> to do what you do. I'm going to teach high school English or something. <laughs> Having said all that, that's what I thought maybe I would do. Mm-hmm. I thought in my luckiest of lives when I was 18, mm-hmm. my luckiest life would be that I would do what this woman was doing, which is just talking to kids about reading and occasionally yeah. reading their essays, but like, you know, sitting up in class talking to a bunch of kids about stories. Yeah. So like that this is where it is, is a pretty amazing thing because it's like, so much more than that, but that still is at the core of it. That still is the thing that I most enjoy, just to be sitting at my table with my students, just like having them put their poems out and talking about them, you know? Yeah. No, I love that, man. I was trying to figure out, because I was in not the same, but a similar mm-hmm. situation in the mm-hmm. honors class. Mm-hmm. And it was just me, and it was very clear that the teacher didn't want me there. Right, um, right. I was the only black student for sure, but uh-huh. I think I was also the only guy. Right. She and my mother fought nonstop. Uh-huh. And, and this she, is the Midwest. Too. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, at some is... point, she told my mom he couldn't even get a B in a regular class, oh, let wow. alone, you know, mm-hmm. past this. Right, right, right. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. I think about that and the ways that those classes are framed supposedly to be supportive or challenging, at least, in some kind of intellectual way. It's true. And on the just basic level, here I am with all these wealthy it's white true. kids and me. Mm-hmm. And she's like, nah, you shouldn't even be in here. I know. So, you know what? I had a feeling like this earlier when I was talking to the students. So I'm going to say something about this connected to the Jordan comment, like uh-huh. Jordan's tone deafness around politics. Mm-hmm. You know saying mm-hmm. like white people buy shoes too, that kind of yeah, thing, or Republicans yeah, yeah. buy shoes too. Yeah. I totally see how he would think like that because yeah. for me growing up, that woman wouldn't even have been on my radar that the teachers would have any opinion of like mm-hmm. my capacity was so far beyond my radar because I was like, oh, I'm playing basketball, yeah. have this other kind of world. And I think I treated my teachers the way unengaged students mm-hmm. treat teachers. I just sort of took for granted that I was also doing well academically because yeah. no one cared. Like even my parents, it wasn't a big deal yeah. whether I made straight A's or straight C's. They were just like, he's still in school. Right. So like with those stakes removed, I just had so little kind of investment 
So I remember like the same thing that my teacher at that. I don't even remember the woman. I have. Yeah. I remember Miss Grimes because I was trying to like sweet talk her. But otherwise, <laughs> I was just like school was just. It was so great to not be home. Yeah. You know, it was like boring at home. So I ran track. I played basketball. I was mm-hmm. on the chorus. I was in the art club. But really, as a way to not be home, not because I thought I was building this kind of life. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, and I think those things are important. I mean, I still try to remember that initial freedom where the stakes mm-hmm. are just not so tied into like those power dynamics even though we know they have them and so that's mm-hmm. why i said there's a naivete from jordan but it's also mm-hmm. like oh he's just somebody ain't never really had like a, somebody's foot on his neck in that way so yeah. he just sort of thinks it's all equal and there yeah. is a freedom to that especially yeah. expressive freedom but there's also in the long view you know if you're lucky you will get somebody's foot on your neck at some point and have to think <laughs> about what that looks like you know what i mean yeah which we- happened for me when i went north after i got out of south and went from college into Pittsburgh, of all places. That was my first time really being like, oh, okay, this is what it means to be a regular person, not a person walking around looking like you're going to like go to the NBA, just a black right, dude right. walking around. And suddenly, you know, dynamics change. But that was great. Yeah. It was important. I mean, I, I really started writing poems in Pittsburgh, too, yeah. because of that new recognition of the dynamics of bodies and class and race. And that would have been when you hooked up with Toy Derricotte, too, right? Now, was she your teacher? Yeah, yeah, I was just her graduate student. And Toy had come through South Carolina on a reading tour, and I just went to hear her read. She, I think she was very likely the first live poet I ever met, first living poet I ever met. Mm. And so based on that, I was like, I'm just going to go where she is. So yeah. it wasn't super complicated. It was just like <laughs> coincidence that she was reading actually at my rival school. You know, mm-hmm. So I rode over. I went by myself. I checked her out. I said something to her at the end. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember if she remembered my work at that point. I think I had submitted it. It was mm-hmm. maybe April at this point. But thereafter, though, she got me up there. I was her graduate assistant. And then that next summer, she started Kaveh Connor. It's incredible. And I was like the first staff, me yeah. and this poet who was also a grad student, Michelle Elliott. We, mm-hmm. were, we were staff. That's so key to like how I got here, really, just to have been lucky enough to be there on the ground floor when yeah. uh, an organization like that got off the ground. I think that that's when we met, too, not yeah. at Kaveh Kana, but somehow around that. Uh, um, I thought we met at the Detroit Kaveh Kana because yeah. they did three years in Esopus in upstate New York, and then they transferred to Cranbrook. Yeah, and so that's where that was. This is the first year that I was there. That's right. I um, remember you. And, uh, and Van Jordan. That's right. And Doug right. Kearney. And there's so many people who ended up being my friends and also just who have inspired me. That's right. Uh, what I remember about you was like you were one of the first people who had read as much, perhaps even more, than I had. And I can tell by people bringing me stuff. So yeah. one of the ways I track relationships is like, who gives me what? It's like gifts. <laughs> so you gave me Morris. You gave me Lawrence Booth's Book of Visions. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I hadn't heard of it. It had just come out. Maybe yeah. it had come out two or three years before or something like that. I feel like it won the Yale. Yeah. I didn't know nothing about it. And you was like, this Morris Manning, man, this book, you don't know this book? And so we talked about other yeah. stuff, but you were talking about that book. And yeah. I was like, I'll look it up. And man, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so like, that book's ridiculous. Fundamental. Yeah. You know? And him. Like, yeah. I've followed his career since then. Mm-hmm. But when I'm tracing back memories, it's certainly like outside of graduate school. Like, I got Bridget McKean Kelly and mm-hmm. I got Yusuf in graduate school. Yeah. But then, like, our peers and other folks, you know, that sort of showed up over time. I always mm-hmm. remember those moments when someone said, oh, you should check this person out. And then you're like, holy smoke. You yeah. know, how did I not know this? I should say, just because we're here in Bloomington, that Morris taught here for a long time. That's right. In fact, I think I got this job when he left. Yeah, so yeah. I, I wish he had stayed. I wish, you, you know what I mean? Like, I, yeah. I just, I think he's so terrific, but he mm-hmm. has a farm. That's right. And, That's right. In Kentucky. And so he's there. Doing but you know, people. brave man. I mean, we can have real conversations around that because yeah. all I do is do poems. 
I mean, I think of my children that I have, my two kids, as right. poems, so that makes me respect them. I thought of my relationships, or maybe still do, as the dynamics of poetry. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's not a good thing. That can be a problem for real relationships if yeah. you're often filtering things through that kind of lens. Yeah. But beyond that, like, it's hard to even, like, function on all other planes. Yeah. So somebody that would, like, leave... Indiana and go be on a farm is foreign to me yeah. because I'm like, unless you're going to like find poems there, I don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> That's right. So yeah, yeah. You know I mean, are, you, are you actually going to tend goats? Is that yeah. what you're going to be doing? stuff. I've read in those op ed pieces in the Times and I know yeah. he does other stuff about that life. It's great. Damn. But for me, I feel like it's a deep, deep tragedy because uh, I just want him to stay in a room and write poems. Yeah, just like stay focused on that. When so, we, we read together in Atlanta a few years ago, mm-hmm. and after the reading, you know, people were going out for food, and he was like, yeah, I'm just going to go to the bookstore. Right, And then right. nobody saw him again. He was uh-huh, just gone uh-huh. like, on some crazy Kaiser Sose stuff where yeah. he just disappeared. Yeah, he's a great poet. He'll still be working his poems. Yeah. But like when I see someone like that, I almost want... Nothing but poems. I don't want nothing. Of course, that's not how poets work. We know this. But it is like my own sense of like the first rule is to the poem and nothing else. Love for the poem. First faith is to the poem. So, But again, you know, limited and maybe I'll grow out of it. I would be a terrible host if I didn't ask you a little bit about To Float in the Space Between Uh since it's about Indiana's own Etheridge Knight. Sure, sure. Um, Now, were you here doing research? for that book? I did. I came through. I interviewed his sister here who's passed. She passed in 2012, Eunice, and met some of the other family members when I came through, one of his nephews. But I've never met his son, who I don't even know where his son is. I don't think he's in Indiana. But uh, yeah, I came through, did some research, and you know, it was really just an ongoing project really for my whole career, to tell you the truth. Every now and again, I would make definitive decisions. Like I did a couple of residencies, and it was all I worked on. Mm-hmm. But primarily, anytime I went somewhere and somebody had an Etheridge Knight story, I'd be like, "Tell it to me," just as a way to hear stories about him and to keep him alive. And because there's so many good ones about him. Yeah. But the thing I would say to you about him, in a kind of like poet sense, like one of the kind of real clear poet lessons I got from him is that he's really the only poet, certainly in his generation. And I would have to really think about other poets beyond that, across the canon that did this, who just was everywhere. His style is so open and Mm -hmm. fluid because his relationships were like that. Mm -hmm. So he starts as a prison poet, and he's sort of mentored by Gwendolyn Brooks, which is already going to complicate the notion of the prison poet, but she's going to ask him to be personal. She's going to ask him Mm -hmm. to think about his life, his past life, all of that. And then out of that, he becomes a black arts poet. So that's different, right? even though she's adjacent to the black arts. But out of that relationship, one kind of poet, he goes into the world. He's a black arts. So now he's married to Sonia Sanchez. Yeah. He's running around with Baraka, gets into trouble, mm-hmm. and then becomes, I think after that, I think he was like a South, not South African, deep image poet. So then he runs with Robert Bly, mm. James Wright, Galway Canal. That's like early 70s. <laughs> then he moves out of that because he got in trouble in Connecticut. He's really good friends with Denise Levertov. That's how he got a Guggenheim. Mm-hmm. And then around after that, then he becomes like a South African poet. So in the late 80s, he's doing this apartheid stuff. He adopts mm-hmm. with his partner two kids from South Africa. They're going to the UN. And then he's a veteran. I mean, he's yeah. all of these things. He's a black man from the South. He's a black man from the Midwest. So for me, that idea of being one thing versus being a multitude, he's a perfect model for that because that's yeah. really what he was. For whatever reasons, like, it wasn't just because he was being exiled to get into trouble. It was because his aesthetics were like that. They were open-ended. Yeah. They were taking a lot of different shapes. And so we see that in the work because that's kind of how he lived. So that's a huge lesson for me tonight. Yeah. So that even goes back to, like, the Kabi Khanum thing. Like, I'm totally faithful and see myself as a Kabi Khanum person. But, you know, when I was there, 
because of my having been a grad student of hers, I was really straddling the line. So I right. never took a copy counter workshop because oh, I was wow. staff. So I was never at the table. I was just sort of like peripheral to that. Yeah. I, I sat in on one of Tim Siebel's class one time <laughs> at the castle. That was great. But uh, generally, I was like getting copies. Yeah. But I also wasn't like faculty, but I could be in those spaces and sort of listening to them too. Mm-hmm. So that idea of moving between all of these different spaces, whether it's basketball or this working at a coffee shop, whether it's hanging out with people in the South, whether it's like hanging out with guys smoking dope, all mm-hmm. of that stuff, hanging out with musicians and then hanging out with grad students. I mean, all of those spaces felt very comfortable to me. And so Etheridge Knight was the first person that I thought was moving similarly through these spaces. Your work is really restless. In this beautiful way, I was thinking about Yusuf Komenyaka's mm-hmm. book, Talking Dirty to the Gods. Sure, sure. And all of the poems are 16 lines, right. uh, four four-line stanzas. Right. And I think his idea was trying to find a way to constrain himself. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. But they're still big. They're such big poems full of mythology and things that's right, like that. That's right. The sonnets are like that to me, right? They're 14 lines, but they're just capacious poems. And one of the reasons you're able to pull that off is because I think you move between those spaces so gracefully. Who else does that? In contemporary poetry. I don't know. Well, you know, Wanda Coleman does it. True. Yeah. But, and Yusuf does it too. Yusuf mm-hmm. still has like a kind of classical pitch. He still has a very refined pitch. So you mm-hmm. ain't going to never see him like dropping no gerunds and nothing like that inside <laughs> the poems. You might not see that much profanity either. Yeah. But the thinking of the poems is always open and he's sort of roaming in these different spaces. So yeah. those poems are an example of that. There's a precursor to the sonnets, which are very directly connected to Talking Dirty with the Gods, which is yeah. my anagram poems. Oh, yeah. Uh, which are not that far off of that because... I had read Talking Dirty with the Gods and came up with a form very different, you know, like using the N-words, taking all the letters like segregate. And then Mm -hmm. the poem has gate, rage, tear, all the words you can make out of segregate. But I got with Yusuf at one of the bread loafs. And at that point, I had written maybe 20 of them. So I was Mm -hmm. still in the midst of them. And I knew that they were inspired by what he was doing in that compressed space. Because again, at the time, that was new for him. You know, yeah. he, he was writing small lyric poems, but it was like the orderliness of it was like the most formal I had seen him doing. Yeah. So it really opened my head up. And he said, you should do a whole book. You should do a book of these anagram poems. I had maybe read them at Brett Loaf. And he was like, these are good. You should do more. And at the time, I was like, oh, I'm bored. You know, I, <laughs> I'm going to take the best ones, which I did. I'm going to yeah. put those in the book, which I did. It was yeah. in Logic, yeah. And then I moved on. But when this came around... I was still thinking, like, this time I should try to sustain it. I should see if I can, like, get a a manuscript out of this thing as opposed to just the poems that come spontaneously, which they were coming, really. And so that's the relationship, like, talking dirty with the guys, like, saying, can you sustain this thing? Because I think he says, like, the first poem is hearsay and the last Mm -hmm. poem is heresy or something like that Mm -hmm. in that book. So it was just, like, the orchestration of the book, in particular in Yusuf's hands, made me want to see, even if it took. 20 years <laughs> to do it. But it, I mean, I was like, I got to look up what age he was when he did Talking Dirty with the Guys. I might be the same age he was or yeah. around about yeah, when I mean. he did that. So there must be something about wanting to get a little formal rush of formalism in your late 40s or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, another shout out to IU Bloomington. I mean, Yusef was here. He was here when That's I was right. an undergraduate. That's right. It's so crazy. I never yeah. studied with him, though. Ed Pavlich was here. Mm-hmm. He was here and a few other people who yeah. studied with him. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, because it would have been... Actually, it would have been in the, yeah, up until about May 96, mm-hmm. something That's like right. that. And yeah. then I think Kevin Young came after that. Right. And he went but, to Princeton first. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, it's kind of amazing to imagine this space mm-hmm. as a space that both supported Youssef, Kevin, Etheridge Knight, Ross. Right. And I told you me. Bridget B. King Kelly spent some time <laughs> like, here. Like, but I'm thinking about this kind of litany. 
I mean, it's a team full of black poets, right? right? Black right. male poets who right. have been here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there been Kyle whole, Darden came out of yeah, this program Kyle, too. Yeah, Kyle, Mitchell right. Douglas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's a, yeah. a bunch of folks who have been here, and it's right. wild since we're you know 20 minutes south of Martinsville. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, though. I was saying to someone coming in that it's sort of like an enclave. There's a few places like that. So Berkeley's one of them. Austin's one of them. Mm -hmm. uh, Even Athens, Georgia. So these are places. And then I spent some time in Columbus, so I think... Columbus is a little bit different, but it's sort of happening. Yeah. We're like, I think Hanif is there now. Oh, yeah. Maybe Saeed is there, too. too. Yeah. So they will have that. But there's yeah. something about, like, a, a university in a space where it's, like, a more open relationship or yeah. the opportunities to kind of, like, run into intellectual life is more possible. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think about that with a place like Austin and certainly a place like Bloomington, too. For yeah. So I don't know if I can put my hand on it because I don't think I've ever, when I lived in Columbus, I wasn't seeing it so I haven't like been super close to why that phenomenon happens yeah. but I do think that there's something do people say that y'all don't think y'all are like the Austin of the Midwest or uh, like that? No. I think that Austin's the Bloomington of Texas <laughs> okay yeah same that's right it's something like that yeah. yeah but you know but when you were saying that I was thinking is there a place like that in South Carolina because Columbia is there no I think it's connected uh, to the school so okay. that would be USC but USC yeah. Like, it's the kind of culture of art or culture of culture that grows up yeah. kind of at the edges of an intellectual space or academic space. So they're not synonymous. Like, I don't think this is true for even for Yale or for Harvard. Right. So right. when it happens, I don't know what it is. Like, why is this a place where music is great? You know what I mean? Yeah. With the, like, why does that happen? You know, yeah. who knows? It would be good to know, though. I think I would need to be here yeah. to figure out what it is. You know, it's like that creative class stuff, Richard Florida. There's mm-hmm. something about just interesting people being in the proximity, showing up at the Whole Foods together or something. Yeah, I, don't, I don't know what yeah. it is, but like it the, is something that makes me think uh, there's a relationship between this place and what's going on in Austin, too. I think. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Thanks for indulging me with that, man, because I've, uh, I've been trying to figure it yeah, out. Like yeah, I, I, I so often miss the city, right. but then I look around and look, what am I not getting? Mm-hmm. Like, And there's a kind of particular pressure of geography, right. I think, when we're in these spaces operating, and right. certainly as a black man operating mm-hmm. in, in kind of homogenous spaces, mm-hmm. even learned spaces, right. it, it creates a different kind of pressure. And so yeah. I would love to ask, so Yusuf, what was it like yeah. you know, for you here? Mm-hmm. Um, because my version of it was he was helping everybody. Right. Like he yeah, tried he to help me. I was just being a knucklehead. So. <laughs> he was. He was working. <laughs> I remember seeing him one day walking across campus. It's like right in between classes uh-huh. and everybody's, you know, there's 40 something thousand students. The, right. You know, people are streaming to their next classes. Right. And he just stopped and got his notebook out and started writing uh-huh. in the middle of it with all these undergraduates streaming around him right. as he's standing in the middle of the walkway. Right. And I thought, that's poetry. Well, you know, right. Yusuf's. Uh, he was here when Etheridge was here. He went to he was at Etheridge's oh, Wake, right. and I, I have a picture. I think I in the book. Maybe I drew a version of that picture that's in the book that, of a thing he wrote about Etheridge, maybe just after he died, and yeah. it's still somewhere online. So there's a relationship between the two. It was like just like again, uh, Southern black man mm-hmm. in the North or in yeah. the Midwest. Even mm-hmm. there's that. But other than that, like that thing about him stopping to write, like Yusuf. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of anybody that would have a deeper work ethic than myself. You know what right. I mean? Like. Certainly, he writes more than I do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. He writes more than everybody. So yeah. he's always, <laughs> always yeah. at it. And, you know, that's a good model. It's a good thing to watch. Yeah. But certainly, like, he, he's always thinking about writing. Yeah. This morning, I was trying to see if I could memorize 
this poem by Bridget B. Gain Kelly. I had it memorized once, so I just pulled it out this morning. I was like, maybe I have a chance to say it. Because, you know, you got to put her name in the air, just like her stomping ground. Mm-hmm. It was in her first book. Her first book won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Lyricism, like, with big stories. But, like, this, I, I mean, it's just the idea of, like, not perfection and clarity is not always the point in poems. Mm-hmm. So this is an early poem. I don't even know what she thought about this early poem, but I definitely think of it as, like, a projection of where she's going. So she wrote in the 80s, you know. Okay, it's called The Hill. Mm-hmm. And it's for Huck, her son Huck. When the dog barks at nothing, when the heat lightning makes its phantoms in the sky, those who are passing, those who are passing wearing their robes, even they have their hungers, then you by the gate have no power to harm me. I shall go out as the crickets do with the frost, letting their lake of sound thin to ice. I shall go out and this field will no longer be mine, where one poplar stands and the archer's target draws the night's invisible arrows down, draws down the stars. They fall into the target as into a sea, and so we are born and so shall die on this hill or elsewhere and pass over this hill or elsewhere, lighting the sky when it is hot and the flesh remembers its songs. I will trust the dream. My son holds the arrow in his hand, holds time to its target and its grief, and time like lightning will split the shaft, leaving this land to others and him to me. So it's the hill. Totally weird poem. Like if you follow most of her work, she can like manage all of the weird stuff that happened and it'll still be a visionary. But like that poem, like arrow, archers, target, what's going on? Popular? Is it a tree on a hill? Is there a target on it? Like a star? So, but I love not knowing. And the thing that like really I get from her and why I want to like bring her into like her old stomping grounds mm-hmm. is, uh, and then, you know, we hung out here. We both taught at the Indiana Writers Conference, which is a great story. I feel like Lee Young Lee was there. Wow. And she was there. She did a talk on Elizabeth Bishop and Sylvia Plath. I mean, I met her one other time, but this is like when we really spent time together, you mm-hmm. know, through that week. That's how I found out that she was from here. But that line in the poem, I will trust the dream. Yeah. Like that, that notion. Uh, is what you always were trying to, you know, sell. Like, trust the dream. Trust yeah. it. Trust that weirdness. Trust that we might not get all of it. I still don't know what's going on in the poem. Mm-hmm. But it's such a wild poem. And it's, I just love that it's, like, from her first book. And it's an indication of things to come, you yeah. know. Already pushing. I should say, too, that you did. You just recited that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see you. I got it. I got it. It's, there's a particular pleasure to remember. I know it. Poems. It makes me go slower, you know. I mean, she has this other poem, Bridget B. Kelly, called The Dragon, which is longer. Do you know this poem? No, Where she's, like, no. in the backyard and she sees these bees lifting a snake across the yard. And she just like, she's got her hand, she's resting, and she just watches him carry the snake. There's two little clouds and the snake just goes across. Crazy, crazy stuff. Like that's really masterful. So this is good, that early stuff, but it's like, I almost feel like if I'm deep inside of that, I mean, it is self-serving, right? Because I'm trying to get out of the sonnets and I'm trying to figure out how to like open it up in the direction that she opens. And so I was thinking about those early poems are showing me, I'm thinking about how she transitions from that poem, which is maybe 18 lines or so, into these full page long, elaborate, fable, allegory kinds of poems that she writes. So I'm hoping that's what I could do next, you know what I mean? I love that, man. When you were reading that, I was thinking very much like when we were talking about Stevie Wonder, Mm -hmm. that 
I should go back and just read all of her stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. Like, stuff in and it. I think that almost every time mm-hmm. I hear her poem, right, yeah. and I only say almost because uh, usually, if I'm not thinking that, it's because I just heard one of her poems and was just thinking it. Right, right <laughs> like, right, it's like right. earlier that day, yeah, yeah. she'd come yeah. up somehow. And I'm like, man, I need to go back. Mm-hmm. And then later the on, the orchard is good. I mean, the song is the one that most yeah. people kind of go into that. And she only did three books. I yeah. also think, let me just put this in the universe too, that there must be another book because mm. she published a book every 10 years. So 83 was The Palace of Trumpets. Mm-hmm. That's where that book comes from. 95 was Song. Mm-hmm. 2006 was The Orchard, which is a finalist for the Pulitzer. Yeah. So we were ready for another book in 2016 when she passed. Right. So that work is someplace. Yeah. Uh, Super private. She lived yeah. in you know on a farm. So yeah. I don't know how... Illinois, be- right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know how they prioritize that or who would even know something like that. And then there are a couple of poems. I mean, I followed everything she did. So she yeah. published this poem called Rome and maybe yeah. got in the Best American. That's not in any of her books. And she usually did not send work out until right before the book came out, like right. just kind of putting it in the marketplace. So there must be something out there somewhere, <laughs> you know, I can dream. Yeah, know. even if it's just outtakes. Right. You know what I mean? Even yeah. if it's just the other work, it'd be beautiful to see. Yeah. Um, so when you were talking about imagining this to be leading you to a new direction, right. have you started working on yeah yeah always always i'm just trying to like i mean the sign is still show up depending on the news cycle but yeah i mean so like i have some new stuff i just it's hard to read it with the sonnet so i always have to kind of figure out where to fit this stuff in but like the last reading i did and next reading i'll probably do i I think i'll probably only read new stuff you know but like when people have been teaching the book i feel like okay i'll read that and i'll read some new sonnets but the other work like those kinds of longer poems that i'm trying to work out What's why I would say I worked on a sentence all day yesterday. You know what yeah. I mean? So it'll take some time. But yeah. if she was doing it every 10 years, I mean, I have like <laughs> kind of thought that for myself. Like, oh, yeah. it's going to be a while till you can get that kind of depth and density inside it. But it would just be a good way to move away from the whatever's happening in those sonnets. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I'm excited, yeah. man. I can't wait to see this next work. Yeah, man. Which we'll is, uh, you know, not to walk away from the work you've already done. Because I don't sure. like that. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, we'll be like, yeah, what are you doing right. next? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, didn't you just see I just wrote two books? Right. Man. But you know, I do say that last poem and the next poem. I mean, so yeah. like, that's why I'm talking about what I was doing last night because that's all yeah. I'm really thinking about. I'm like, right. can I get that thing to work? The Jack Handy dog, you know, and the next thing, <laughs> as long as the next thing and like the last thing. So that's usually perennially where I am is between the last poem I wrote and the poem I'm trying to write next. Yeah. So I prefer that space. I love it, man. Terrence Hayes, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us on Profiles. Yeah, good and, to be here, uh, man. Always good to talk to yeah, you, Yeah, it's always good to talk to you, brother. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Terrence Hayes, poet, painter, and teacher. He's been speaking with Indiana Poet Laureate, Adrian Matika. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.